So come and be with us then as we open once again our closed minds, our hardened hearts, our lost souls, so that we can see the truth, know the truth, and follow the truth. For the sake of your Son, we pray. Amen. How is everybody? Does it feel like fall yet? Kind of does. The days are warm, but the nights are cool. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's great. We were just, Helen and I were just in McCall, Idaho. Any here ever been to McCall? We got some folks that have been to McCall. Yeah. North of Boise, a couple hours uh, on the Payette River. There's a lake. There's some mountains you can ski on. There's lots and lots of cows. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. We had a wedding up there this past uh, weekend. And uh, it was 76, I think, on Sunday. Uh, and as we left, all the locals said, it won't be 76 for another eight months. So you go to McCall, and every single fire hydrant everywhere has a long metal pole sticking up from it that goes up to probably 10 or 12 feet high. You know why those are there? Yeah, so that when there's 32 feet of snow, you can see where the fire hydrant is. Yes, aren't we blessed to live in San Diego? <laughs> How fun. How fun. Well, friends, we last week embarked on a, a new season, a new year of study, and um, I, I summarized for you a little bit about what we're doing this year in our studies, also in our Sunday morning uh, uh, worship and messages at the church. I want to do that again for us because I think it's always really important to kind of know where you are. Would, would you agree with me? Does, does anybody not really know where you are this morning? Some people are kind of iffy on I understand. It, it's a while to get oriented. It's always good to know where you are. Well, the last few years, we have uh, structured these adult Bible studies uh, around the themes and the interests and concerns of our Sunday morning worship, and all of that has been for the purpose of coming into the study of Scripture in a different way than we have for the last 20 years or so, but an equally valid way of coming into our study of the Scriptures. The, the 66 books of the Bible, 66 as the Protestants have it organized, there's a few more for our Roman Catholic uh, brothers and sisters, but the 66 books of the Bible are sort of organized chronologically and theologically, but they're not necessarily organized thematically, right? There are some big themes, there are some big messages, some very, very important overarching theological affirmations that the Scriptures all speak of, but you don't necessarily get a sense of that unless you take a higher view, and higher in the sense of, of standing above all of those 66 books. And so what we're trying to do in our study these days is stand above all of those and look at where those major themes exist and what they say to us. And so it's a different way of doing study, but, but, but very important. This fall, of course, we are looking at the theme of unity or community, or what it means, what it's about, how it happens, how it doesn't happen, where it messes up, and how we fix it, and how God fixes it, what it happens to have a relationship between us and God, and a relationship between us and other people, and then expanding out to the relationships of all the people in the whole wide world. Does that make sense to you? 
Um, as I mentioned last week, our, our leaders of the church, uh, pastors, uh, ministry leaders, elders, talked about what's going on in the world today and said, what is happening in the world today? And one of the things that we see, uh, as has happened in many other periods of history, uh, is that we're having, a, we're having trouble getting along with each other. Uh, some of us have trouble getting along with ourselves. Would anybody say amen to that? Of course, yes, yes, and, the, and then it just goes from there. So that's kind of the theme that we're looking at. And so we've got different scripture passages coming in every week. You have those passages uh, for the rest of this year. We'll give you a whole new set uh, in a month or so for what's going to be coming uh, after the, the turn of the year. And so you can read those passages ahead. You can begin to study them on your own. Along the way, we'll give you some information about the particular books and the particular situations of those books, uh, and that will also help you. Does that all make sense? So, let's dive in, and uh, last week uh, we looked at the, uh, the Great Commission from Matthew, Matthew 28, where Jesus tells us to go out into the world and make disciples and baptize folks, and we looked at baptism, we looked at the problems that the church in Corinth, the brand new Christian church in Corinth was having in the first century of getting along with each other, and we're going to continue looking at that theme. We're going to be looking into Leviticus and Ezra and Matthew. Okay, So what I want to do is read these three passages for us so that we have them in our heads, and then I'm going to ask you a question. So be thinking about this question, okay? The question is, what are the, the, the ideas, the images, the issues or the concerns that rise up for you out of these three passages, okay? There's lots of good stuff in them. Let's look at Leviticus first, okay? I'll tell you more about Leviticus and Ezra and uh, Matthew. You already know a lot about Matthew as we go along. Leviticus, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, take Aaron and his sons with him, the vestments, the anointing oil, the bull of sin offering, the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble the whole congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. When the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting, Moses said to the congregation, this is what the Lord has commanded to be done. Now from the book of Ezra. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel. The people also wept bitterly. Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, of the descendants of Elam, addressed Ezra, saying, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land, but even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. So now let us make a covenant with our God to send away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law." Take action, for it's your duty, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra stood up and made the leading priests, the Levites, and all Israel swear that they would do as had been said. So they swore. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehoanan, son of Eliashib, where he spent the night. He did not eat bread or drink water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. They made a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem. 
and that if any did not come within three days, by order of the officials and the elders, all their property should be forfeited, and they themselves banned from the congregation of the exiles. And then finally from Matthew 26. When they, the disciples, had sung the hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all become deserters because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Thus endeth the reading of the word. That's how we used to end it. Thanks be to God. Yeah, exactly. Thanks be to God that he takes the time to talk with us, right? Okay, let's, let's spend, you know, 60 seconds or so. What are some of the big issues, the big ideas, the big themes that speak to you out of these three passages? The Jewish religion is being diluted, okay? Yes, yes, that's a big issue and a big question. Okay, good one. Another one, yes. You have a problem with them sending away the wives and the children. I knew I never should have picked this passage. <laughs> okay, we will talk about that. We will talk about that. Yes. Yes, they're, they're wanting to have an, an exclusive versus an inclusive community, okay? Okay? What else? How important leaders are in the church for the people, okay? Good. Faithlessness. Yes, faithlessness. Good. Good. Anything else? Yes. Obedience. All right? Let's see. So far, I've got six here, okay? Through God, we can change. There's seven, Okay. There is hope in spite of faithlessness, okay? Let's see, that's eight, right? Anything else you see there? Okay, in spite of the fact that things are falling apart in different ways, God is gluing them back together. There's nine. There we go. They want to only follow the one God. That's the issue. There's ten. Anything else? Community. There we go. Yes, they're not working together to worship God or to help each other, okay? That was eleven. Does anybody want to try for 12? Okay, there's an 11-week sermon series right there out of just these passages. And so we're going to be here till about 10 o'clock tonight. <laughs> See, folks who read a biblical passage and say, I just don't get anything out of it, if you'll just look at it for a few minutes, look at all the stuff that comes out of there. Okay, that's beautiful. That's wonderful. Now, of course, I have to admit to you, there is one sort of overriding issue that, that I'm going to be focusing, actually Jan is preaching, is it Jan preaching? Yeah, Jan is preaching this Sunday, uh, that, that we're going to be looking at this Sunday, that, that issue of community that we talked about. All those other things feed into that though, right? Part of my point is you can never go into a study of a biblical passage and think that it's only about one thing, right? All of life exists in the middle of very complex relationships and situations, right? That's just the way all of life is. That's the way the Bible is. Okay, let's go back and start talking about some of these things. First of all, the book of Leviticus. I'm sure that all of you regularly turn to the book of Leviticus to read carefully through it for your spiritual edification every day, right? Not so much, not so much. Leviticus really, in a way, gets a bad rap. Uh, almost nobody reads Leviticus. Almost nobody, yours truly included, uh, preaches much from Leviticus. Leviticus seems to be just full of kind of boring rules and regulations and descriptions uh, ad infinitum, ad nauseum about the way you're supposed to worship, etc., etc., etc. And yet, 
Leviticus also is what we call canonical Scripture. It's part of the law of God, part of the revelation of God. So what is Leviticus? Well, we need to remember that Leviticus really is just a, a continuation. It's part of the story of the Pentateuch, of the first five books of the Bible, especially the, 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 the first uh, after Genesis, then the other four, right? We have the story of creation and everything's put together and Abraham and all that good stuff, but then with Exodus we have the story of God delivering the slaves, the Hebrew slaves in Egypt from out of their bondage and captivity and having them wander around in the wilderness for a while and move into the Holy Land. The book of Le That's the story of Exodus. The book of Leviticus tells the people how it is that they are going to live out this relationship that they have with God. This thought just occurred to me, so I don't know if I'll agree with it, but I'm going to say it anyway. Does that ever happen to you? <laughs> yeah. Exodus is kind of like the people are now married to God, okay? Leviticus is all the rules and regulations and details of how they're actually going to live every day with each other. You know, how we're going to squeeze the toothpaste tube and who's going to write the thank you notes and what we're going to do when the mother-in-law comes over and stays too long, okay? This is the stuff of how the relationship is played out. In that sense, Leviticus is really good news. Leviticus is a very important book because it's one thing to set up a relationship and say, hi, I think we got something going here. It's a whole other thing to live out that relationship, isn't it? Well, that's what Leviticus does. Often, of course, in, in uh, terms that are archaic to us, in, in ways of thinking or worshiping or relating to God that just don't seem to have much importance anymore. Some of that, of course, is because the story continued and the people learned more. And then you had Jesus come on the scene and, and help the people understand what it was all about. But fundamentally, the book of Leviticus has a lot of important things to say to us. And you and I, I think, have the task of, of looking harder, of searching deeper, of asking more penetrating questions, not just throwing the thing out because it's difficult, but trying to get down deeper into what the story is actually all about. So, in Leviticus, we say, the Lord speaks to Moses. Right there, something important is going on. There's a 13th thing that we didn't get. The Lord speaks. What do we do? We should listen. Absolutely, we should listen. The Lord speaks to Moses, and then Moses is going to talk to us, so we are going to listen to Moses. You kind of have the call of Moses has already happened. Moses has been doing this thing. Now God is saying more to Moses so Moses can talk to the people. Moses is going to take Aaron and his sons. You remember Aaron? What is Aaron famous for in the Scriptures? Say it again making the golden calf. Aaron was the first jeweler that we have in the... No, I, yeah, yeah. Right? Aaron is Moses' brother. Aaron is very important as, as, as kind of the helper for Moses. You know, he's the, the trusted sort of silent one in the background. Remember, Moses goes up the mountain and comes down with the Ten Commandments, but the people have gotten impatient, so Aaron has created the golden calf for him. That whole story. Aaron is not a perfect person. Moses is not a perfect person, but here they are. God is using them. God is speaking through them. Take Aaron and your sons. Aaron was the first priest, if you will, of the Hebrew faith, of the Jewish faith, and then his sons following him, right? 
Take Aaron and your sons, and then take all this stuff that's involved with our worship of God, vestments, oil, bulls, rams, unleavened bread, okay? If this were a Presbyterian gathering, what kind of stuff would they bring together to have worship? Say it again. Casseroles. Oh, someone said casseroles. Yes, you're exactly right. Yeah, the elements, you'd, you'd, donuts, donut holes in particular. We have trained you how to follow Jesus so well in this room. This is very cool, right? So Presbyterian worship, you'd come in, and you'd have a tiny little tasteless wafer for communion, and then you'd have some diluted Welch's grape juice for communion. And, you know, you wouldn't have a bull, probably. Might make things interesting, right? If it's a very traditional Presbyterian church, the vestments would be very plain and simple black. That's it, right? Presbyterian worship, traditional, would walk in with the Bible. Say, this is the scripture that we're looking at, right? All of this stuff that they're bringing in is the stuff that helps them remember important things about God and about themselves and come before God to worship. Now, notice they're to bring all of this stuff. And the Lord says to Moses, assemble the whole congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. What's the tent of meeting? The tabernacle, right. Do some of you remember? I know we've talked about I've been talking up here for more than 20 years, so I've said everything that needed to be said. The only problem is we have our time remembering it, right? What is the tabernacle? What does the word tabernacle actually mean? Dwelling. Yes. Tab Good for you. Right. <laughs> Two gold stars today. Wow. I don't remember what I say. I'm amazed you remember what I say, right? The word tabernacle is actually a verb. We think of the tabernacle as a place, the tent, okay? Tabernacle means to dwell with. The tabernacle is the place where we celebrate and in some sense re-experience re, uh, re the fact that God dwells with us. Okay, let's get all this history straight now, right? Charlton Heston goes up the mountain. He comes back down with the two tablets of stone on which are written the Ten Commandments. Why did God give the Ten Commandments? Because God had rescued the people and said, now here is who you are going to be. Here is how you're going to function. Here is how you are going to live in such a way that you actually experience the blessing that I want to give to everybody, and you're going to be the visible sign, the living symbol of that reality for the rest of the world. That's those Ten Commandments. And so they've got the two tablets of stone. They put the two tablets of stone in the Ark of the Covenant, the fancy box, right? It's got cherubim on it, and they carry it around, and Indiana Jones tries to go and find it, and it gets lost in the government warehouse, right? Okay, so you've got the two tablets, you got the Ark of the Covenant, and the Ark of the Covenant is going to be kept in the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, right? There are lots of detailed instructions about how the tent is to be constructed, right? The tent, in a sense, is the first house of worship for the Hebrew people. But it's a tent. Why is it a tent? They can't afford to build a building? It's movable. Yes, it's a pop-up trailer. It's movable. You put it behind your big honking Ford pickup and you carry it along with you, right? 
Okay, the tent is movable. This is the house of worship for a wandering nomadic people. The word Hebrew, by the way, comes from an older word. It's the word apiru. It means the nomads, the wanderers. That's why homeland is such a big deal to the Jewish people, because they were homeless. They wandered to and fro across the face of the earth. And they tried to settle different places, but it didn't work out, and eventually they were settled involuntarily in Egypt. And now they've been wandering again, but they're going to the promised land. They got their tent with them. It's called here, not the tabernacle, but the tent of meeting. Who's meeting? It's where God meets the people. And then, of course, people meet God. I've told you all here before about camp meeting, have I not? How many of you have been to camp meeting, right? You all have such an impoverished childhood. I am sorry for you. I grew up in New Mexico where the tradition had developed in the late 1800s, but especially in the early 1900s in New Mexico and Texas and Arizona primarily, some in southern Colorado, where preachers would come to a certain area of the state and hold camp meeting. Why was it called camp meeting? Because you had ranchers that lived all over the place, long way away from each other, completely impractical to get to church every Sunday morning. And so what they would do was have all of their church in one swell foop, okay? They would get together for a week, usually two weeks. The ranchers would come from a region uh, maybe as far as 200 miles away. They would camp, and in the one that I grew up going to, even though we lived in town, it had kind of become just sort of a religious revival experience in some ways. We would have church at 9 and 11 and 3 and 7 and prayer meeting at 5 and Bible study uh, at, at uh, 10. You'd get, and you'd do that for five days in a row, okay? So count that, five times four, you'd have 20 worship services, okay? And five Bible studies and five prayer meetings, camp meeting. This is the tent of meeting where you meet together and where you worship God. Isn't that amazing? Now, we tend to gloss over what's going on here. You know, when you just read that passage, you say, oh, great, you know, we're going we're gonna to kill a bull, and we're going to burn some grain, and we've got all this kind of stuff going on, and we've never seen that happen in a Presbyterian church before, or even a Roman Catholic. I don't know any church recently that's been killing bulls. Have you? Um, might bring people back into worship again. I don't know, right? We gloss over that and say, well, that's just old stuff that they were doing. Isn't it interesting? But no, it's absolutely crucial. The Lord says to Moses, call the people together, the whole assembly, the whole assembly. If we had everybody who is a member and a participant and an occasional visitor and a constituent in the life of the village church gather together all at one time, do you know how many people that would be? A lot. It would be at least 1,100. It would be closer probably to 2,000 people. We wouldn't have room for all those folks. We kind of, if, we put, if we jammed the sanctuary and the chapel and the parlor and this room and then set up a bunch of chairs out on the patio, we could get 2,000 people here. This is the whole assembly. Get everybody together. Why do they need to get everybody together? You thought about that? 
there's something important going on here, and everybody needs to hear. Anybody grew up in families that had meetings? There we go, family meeting. When dad calls a family meeting, or more, more likely, when mom tells dad to call a family meeting, <laughs> right? Something big's coming down. Maybe good, maybe not good, but something big's coming down. They're having a family meeting. The family is meeting, the whole family, the whole community, because God has something to say to them, right? Now, let's look at the passage from Ezra because we get a little bit, uh, a little bit better sense of what the kind of business is done at these things, right? If Leviticus happens sometime uh, right before the people enter, the, enter into the Holy Land, Leviticus is set sometime around 1,300 years before Jesus, Okay, 1,300 years. Now, we know that, that the tribes came into the Holy Land, and they existed as, as different groupings of people for about 300 years, the 12 tribes, and then David came along about 1,000 years before Jesus, so 300 years after they came into the Holy Land. Then you have David. He puts the nation together as a nation, and then, of course, the nation thrives for a while, but then it disintegrates. The Assyrians take over the northern part of the kingdom. The Babylonians take over the southern part of the kingdom, and by the year 587 now before Jesus, the nation is mostly obliterated, and some of the Jews are deported into where? Into Babylon, right? And then about 70 years later, uh, under Nebuchadnezzar, and then uh, later under Artaxerxes I and Artaxerxes II, the Persian kings, the exiles that have been in Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq, those exiles come back. They're allowed to go back into the, the land of Palestine, okay? Now, Artaxerxes, actually Nebuchadnezzar sends Nehemiah to go with the people. Nehemiah is a Jew, and he says to Nehemiah, you know, you've got all these foreigners living here among us, and I'd like to let you go back home and kind of reestablish your country. Nehemiah, you're a civil engineer. Go back and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, rebuild the city. Eventually, they'll rebuild the temple. And then Artaxerxes later on says to Ezra, who's a priest, Ezra, we also need to rebuild the religion of the people because the religion is a fundamental part of the culture and of the identity of the community. You can't have the nation of the Jews without their faith. So Ezra comes back as a priest to help the people rebuild their faith. Why do you think the Persians let that happen? Why, did they, why were they interested in that? Were they just good guys? The Persians actually had a very, uh, a very involved self-interest there. The Persians knew what the Romans later would learn, that when you come in and conquer a group of people, it, it's no, no use just destroying and obliterating everything, okay? Maybe you have to do a little bit of that so that you can conquer them and control them. But what you want them to do eventually is become productive members of society again so that they'll produce a lot so that you can tax them a lot. And the, uh, the Persians also were interested in rebuilding the nation of Israel because it was in that territory that the Egyptians would come from the southwest to attack the Persians. And so if you put a strong nation of the Hebrews there, they're a buffer zone. So there's some self-interest involved in that. But nevertheless the nation of the Hebrew people had a chance to become a nation again. And so 
Nehemiah's physically rebuilding the city of Jerusalem as the center of all of it, and Ezra is leading in rebuilding the faith as the center of all of it. That's what's going on in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And so in this particular story, right, Ezra prays, Ezra confesses, Ezra throws him down, himself down before the people of God, and a great assembly of men, women, and children, everybody come to him from out of Israel, and they're crying, they're weeping, they're mourning. Why? The particular issue here that some of you pounced on right away, understandably so, was the question about intermarriage, right? Now, we used the terms inclusive and exclusive here. And this is not the major issue that I want to look at today, but we need to understand this issue because it relates to the, to the major thing that we're looking at, right? Think about this. Even though if you were a foreign wife or the child of a, of a mixed marriage, you wouldn't like to be sent away, of course. But why would the people believe that they needed to do that? What would be, think of one good reason that the people would need to stop intermarrying with people of other faiths? Yes. The Jews trace their heritage through the mother. Yes. And if you've got mothers coming in from a different heritage, the problem is you're no longer Jewish. It seems a bit harsh, I agree. Let me ask you this question. This is another thing I just thought of, and I don't know if I like it, okay? A flying saucer arrives from a different planet, and some creatures get out, and your child decides to marry one of them and have kids. Is that going to work? What would be some of the issues? You said one of your kids did? Yeah. <laughs> right? Here's the issue. Understandably, we look at this and say, what's the big deal? But we need to understand that the people did this, actually. I contend that when people are doing something, they think they have a really, really, really good reason for it. We might think they're crazy but they think they have a good reason for it. There were some excellent reasons that the people would say we need to stop intermarrying. I brought in the, the true alien question, right? Because if you're going to marry a creature that is completely unlike you are, then you are probably going to lose who you are. For the Jews, the business of intermarriage was not just about we think that we don't like those people over there. It's about maintaining their identity as the people of God. It's about maintaining their practice, the way they live life, okay? How many of you would be happy if your child married into a culture that promoted polygamy and child sacrifice? How many of you would like to say, my firstborn grandchild, particularly grandson, will be slaughtered at the base of a temple to a foreign god. How many of you would be happy with that? Anybody here? Okay, that's what's at stake. What's at stake is the, the, not just the religious identity of the people, but the way they are going to practice and live their lives. 
How many of you have sons-in-law and daughters-in-law here? Okay, how many of you are a son-in-law or a daughter-in-law? Anybody here know any sons-in-law or daughters-in-law? Your kid can marry another kid from another family, and that family can be almost identical to your own, but there are still issues of integrating all that together, are there not? Right? Let's say you're a card-carrying liberal. Do you want your kid to marry a conservative? Let's say you're a card-carrying conservative. Do you want your kid to marry a liberal? That's what's at issue here, okay? What's at stake here is, as far as the people of Israel are concerned, is their very success and survival as people, as a community, as a nation. If that's what's at stake, then what the people were saying was that the marriages that happened were never really marriages, shouldn't have been, and the children that happened were never really children, shouldn't have been. Now, we will say, of course, wow, why didn't you think of that beforehand? <laughs> And of course, we have moved to a different place where we want to talk about the fact that religion, so to speak, does not make a difference. But this is not just what a person says they believe. This is what a person does. And we have to take it to that extreme place. I'd never thought about this before, but I think now that it's a fantastic way of looking at this. Your child's going to marry someone else, and their first child is going to be slaughtered. You happy about that? Probably not. So that's what the real issue is. The issue is, what is it that maintains the community? What makes the community itself a community? The issue of inclusivity and exclusivity. Let's talk about that for just a second, and then we'll go to the Matthew passage as well. Yes, absolutely they could have. We see that story all through the Old Testament, right? with Ruth and Naomi, and, and with, uh, her name just left me, the prostitute that helped um, Rahab. Rahab. Yes, Rahab. Thank you very much. Don't ever think that all through Jewish history, the Jews completely excluded everybody. They actually had a long tradition of including lots of folks. But as part of that inclusion, people would need to buy into not just the things they said they believed, but the things that they did. They would need to become, in some way, part of the Jewish community, right, in the practice of faith. And so, Judaism offered people a way to be included, but the way that they were included was by joining into the family identity and practice. Thank you for, for bringing up that point. That's a very important point, okay? One of the big, yeah, when Abraham and, and, and Sarah sent Hagar away, right? Because Hagar was not part of the promise. Hagar was not the way things were going to be. We think of it as harsh. But if you think of it as saying to your son when he's about married, ready to marry a pagan woman, you cannot do that because I don't want to watch my grandson slaughtered. That's what it was. That's a real issue for these folks. There were many other things out of that. That's the most extreme one that I can think of, but it was a real one, okay? So what you would say is, I'd love for you to marry this beautiful girl. She's intelligent. She's got great career prospects, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you know what? She needs to learn to do some things our way. That's kind of what it is. Yes, hand over here. Yeah, the big, how does it tie into loving your neighbor as yourself, right? Uh, that's, there's a huge question in the Scripture, 
as to how far you go to bring people into your circle of fellowship and what you do once you do that, right? There, there's very clear stories, there's very clear evidence that even Jesus would say, you can't go this far. Jesus throwing the money changers out of the temple. Jesus challenging the Roman and Jewish authorities that were killing the people. Don't think that, that being a person of faith means you accept everything that everybody says and does and believes. It, in fact, means that you reject much of what they say and do and believe. Does that mean that you kill them? No. But there is a really, really big issue in the question of intermarriage because intermarriage tends to dilute whatever the two partners bring into their marriage. Right? Now, we all come from a history where not so long ago and still in some places in the Christian world, Catholics and Protestants won't marry each other. Is that a big enough issue? Is that a big enough question? Maybe, maybe not. I live in a world that says, no, that's not a big issue, right? Where I do see some issues is when people of deep faith marry people of no faith, or people of deep faith in two different ways of living marry each other. Now, I know all about romantic love and all that stuff, but I will, let me say this to you as a pastor, okay? You can fire me tomorrow if you want to, or later today for that matter. <laughs> I rarely see a situation where people of very different faith marry each other and they actually maintain the practice of either faith. That almost never happens. That almost never happens. It's a very interesting question that when we look at, at people getting married to each other, we say, you know, you, you need to have some interests in common. You need to have some similar values, some similar goals. You need to have a lot of stuff that's very much the same if a marriage is going to survive, okay? I do not want anybody to raise their hand. I don't even want you to look to the side. But there are people in this room who have been divorced from people that were so different from them, it didn't work. I know I'm right about that, right? Why would religious faith and practice not be one of the things that we say is important for people to have a high degree of, of compatibility. I'm not saying that people of, of different religious faith cannot successfully be married. I have seen that happen too. But it's an interesting dance. And if it comes down to your belief that this actually makes a difference in, in how you are going to survive and thrive and live, and whether or not you have a relationship with the living God, that's a big question. I know of a person who uh, was dating a, a, a Protestant girl who was dating a, a Roman Catholic guy. And the Roman Catholic guy at one point uh, said to her, said, uh, you know, you, you realize that when we, get, when we get married, that was his first mistake, he hadn't asked her, when we get married, our children will be raised as Catholics. And she said, number one, we haven't talked about getting married. Number two, we haven't talked about raising the children why would you think that? He said, well, they have to be Catholic so that they'll go to heaven. And she said, that's fine, but you don't care about me. I'm Protestant. You don't care if I go to heaven or not? That was his attitude. Now, I'm not picking on Catholics or Protestants. 
I'm just saying that if there's such a huge difference in what you think, that guy actually believed that his children would not go to heaven unless they were Roman Catholics. There's the issue. There's the question. It is a question ultimately, and we can talk about this forever, it is a question ultimately of what creates community, right? And in order to have a community, there must be inclusivity as well as exclusivity. A community is by definition a group of people who are grouped around something. Think about that. Jesus' community is incredibly inclusive. He says, everybody can come. But does Jesus welcome people into the fellowship of the church who say, Jesus, you're a fool, you're misguided, you're a deluded crackpot, you're not who you said you were, you are not the Son of God, you did not die and, re- and were resurrected from life? Does Jesus say, welcome to my community, to those folks? Does He? He says, welcome and come, but this is what you must believe. Anybody can believe it. Anybody can come, but this is what you must know about me. Does that make sense? Thoughts, questions? Yeah. Judas was part of Jesus' community for three years. And then he did something terrible. And we will never know, had Judas not hung himself by tradition... Had Judas come back to Jesus after the resurrection and said, Jesus, I'm sorry, will we ever know what Jesus would have said to him? I think I know what Jesus would have said to him. Welcome back, right? Absolutely. The community of God's people are the community who have some sense of knowing who God is, right? Or else they're not part of the community. Does that mean... Some people take that to mean, well, if you're not part of the community, you're going to hell, God doesn't love you, et cetera, et cetera. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. But the community is those people who actually receive and respond. The word obey was used over here earlier. They hear the Word of God and respond to the Word of God. Where where the church, where people get in trouble is where they take the exclusivity requirement of community and apply it in the wrong way. Your skin is a different color. Your politics is a different color. Your racial, ethnic origin is a different color. Whatever it is that's different about you, therefore you are excluded from the possibility of being included. Jesus never excluded anyone from the possibility of being included, and I don't think Jesus would have excluded Judas. Jesus would not exclude Osama bin Laden or Adolf Hitler or pick the worst figure of history that you could ever think about. We have to admit the possibility that Jesus would say, even to the worst person that ever existed in history, you can be included again. There's where the issue is. There was a hand up back here. Yes. Yeah, very good question. Very good. How, how, how can we say that... that including somebody, marrying somebody who's not Christian, that might not be God's way of making them Christian. That's a very good question. Remember here, what was the issue or what the set of issues that were the deep heart of this? And we see this question come up continually throughout the history of the Old Testament. The deep issue was that the people who obeyed and followed God and knew the one true God and were living the life that God had taught them, which is the only way successfully to live life, 
they were not welcoming other people in and converting them. It was going the other way. There's where the issue is. It was going the other way. And these good, faithful Jews who believed in the sanctity of human life were sacrificing their firstborn children. So that's the issue. The community must maintain its values, its true values, not its false values. You have to be this color, you have to speak this language, you have to be that socioeconomic status. So the community is important. Now, notice, let's keep moving here so we can finish up. This is a hornet's nest, isn't it? But do you know what? If we don't talk about hard stuff, then why are we bothering to talk? This is important stuff. Notice that in this story from Ezra, that all of the people are gathered together. The whole assembly must come together. And they are called to remember who they are and what they're about and what they're not about. That's the point of it. They're called together. Now, in the Matthew passage, something very different is going on here. Obviously, you know this passage better. This happens, this is part of the conversation between Jesus and the disciples on the night that He's arrested, the night that He's betrayed by Judas, the next day He's going to end up crucified, okay? Jesus predicts, Jesus knows that it's not just Judas who will betray Him, it is all the disciples who will run away, who will leave, and then eventually Peter who will deny Him publicly. Peter hung around though, and Peter came back and got forgiven for that, right? What does Jesus say to the disciples? Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. What does that mean? Anybody here grow sheep? Raise sheep? You don't plant sheep in the ground, do you? You raise sheep, right? (laughs) What's that? Without the leader, everything falls apart. Right? You've got Moses as a great leader. The transition of leadership is hugely important in the Bible. It's hugely important in every human community. You've got Ezra as a great leader, calling the people back to who they are. Now you have Jesus. I would contend to you that the reason the church exists, the reason the people of God exist as the church, is not because of us, but it's because of Jesus. Would you agree with me? Jesus is the center. One of the ways we look at this inclusivity-exclusivity question is to look at where is the center. There's always folks on the fringe, the outliers, okay? Not condemning them, but we always have to keep looking to the center. This is one of the places where the Christian church in the world today, whether it's Roman Catholic or Armenian Orthodox or Syrian or Syriac or Methodist or Baptist or whatever it is, the Christian community today finds itself able to talk with itself as it talks about Jesus. That's the center of everything. If you lose Jesus, you lose everything. If you're not somehow oriented around the center, Think of this spatially. If you are turned away from the center, if you don't agree that that's the center, you're not part of that community. And the church fails, has failed historically, will fail again, surely, because it's a church of people. The church fails uh, 
when it is not focused on the central thing. We've often focused on peripheral things, right? You know, wow, you have priests, and we have ministers, and you have incense, and we have bad-tasting Welch's grape juice and whatever, right? Who cares? Let's talk about Jesus, and only Jesus. If we get too far from that and start talking about the peripheral things, we're in trouble. Now, what does that say then, not just about the Christian community, but the community that includes Jews and Muslims and Zoroastrians and Confucians and whatever else you want to throw into that, and even atheists? I've actually had some very good conversations with atheists about Jesus. And, and actually, I've met some atheists who, who have a lot of appreciation for Jesus. They don't quite so, go so far as to, to say that they believe who Jesus actually is, but, but at least we have a conversation, right? What do we do about the rest of the world? In my, how, let me ask you this question. This is the biggest question. How does Jesus inform the way that you and I relate to the non-Christian world? What do you learn from Jesus that teaches you what you're supposed to do with and about and for and among and in spite of all those other folks out there who don't love Jesus the way we do? Love them. What a novel idea. One God. Yes, there is one God. Not everybody believes there's one God. A lot of people believe in multiple gods. A lot of people believe their version of the one God is, is different from our version of the one God. There's a conversation there. We say there's one God. How you understand that God is an important question, right? Those pagan wives and maybe children that Ezra was talking about believed in multiple gods, and those gods told them to sacrifice their children. That's a problem, isn't it? At some point, even Jesus would say, this is wrong, this is right. It's not a question about right and wrong. It's a question of, of how would Jesus treat them, right? So we would love them. How, what else do you learn from Jesus about how you treat people? Yes. Okay, yes, you model his behavior. You go out to all the people. You serve all of the people, right? That's what Jesus would do. Jesus made no distinctions. When people... Think about the stories of Jesus. When people came to Jesus for something, did He say to them, are you a member at First Presbyterian Church? If you're not, then I'm not going to take care of you. A Roman centurion came to Jesus, a man who almost certainly believed in multiple pagan gods. That Roman centurion came to Jesus and said, will you heal? And Jesus said, wow, you got faith, don't you? You care about somebody else, don't you? A half-breed Samaritan woman, somebody that no righteous, upstanding, self-respecting person would even dare to glance at or talk to, much less engage with, Jesus brought her into his circle of fellowship. What else do you learn from Jesus? Yes. Okay. Wouldn't, wouldn't judge people because of their lack of faith, would always welcome them. Yeah, Jesus would certainly welcome everybody. Jesus would certainly call everybody to have faith, right? 
Here's a question. I don't want to pick on you, okay, because everybody would say exactly what you've said, and I certainly say that all the time. We need to understand what we mean when we say non-judgmental, okay? I have never met a person in the world, especially the person who says we shouldn't judge other people, who isn't extremely judgmental. I look at a person who says it's the right thing to sacrifice your firstborn child and say that's wrong. That's a judgment right there, isn't it? I look at the person who says it's okay for me to own a group of people over here as my slaves and make them do whatever I want to and treat them worse than animals. I judge them. I look at people who say it's okay to take young women off the streets and, and, and force them into sexual slavery for the rest of their lives. Oh, I'm, well, I'm going to be non-judgmental. Horse hockey. I'm not picking on you. We all say that. We all say we shouldn't judge other people, and yet we judge all the time about the difference between right and wrong. When we say we shouldn't be judgmental, and the, the good side of that is that we're saying, you know, I, I'm not your God. I, I'm not the one who's going to condemn you to hell forever. And if you say this is this way and I say that is that way, there's a lot of things we shouldn't judge each other about, right? You say it's best if I vote this way, and I say it's best if I vote that way. I'm not going to judge you, right? The question is, what do we judge about? That's where the real question is. And so I think it's important to understand Jesus stood very clearly in a moral, ethical tradition that said this is the right way to live, that's the wrong way to live. The Ten Commandments. There you are. There you are. Let's take one of the Ten Commandments. Let's let's say, I, I realize I'm creating extreme examples here, but they're necessary to help us understand the truth, right? You say that when your parents reach a certain age where you have to change their diapers and feed them and take them to the grocery store and go through their mail and pay all their bills, that's the point at which I will simply have them executed because they're too much trouble. What's right? What's wrong? Right? I'll go most of the way with you on that and say, recognize that there are different cultures. There are different ways of doing things, different ways of understanding things, looking things, absolutely, right? I love to go study other cultures, right? I've been to Texas, I've been to New Jersey, I've been lots of places where they do things differently, okay? For the most part, most of our problem in the world community is that we do not look carefully and understand and appreciate all the different things that exist in all the different cultures, right? But don't ever make the mistake of saying, well, that's just a different culture, therefore I have to accept it, okay? It's a different culture where people enslave girls and where people enslave people from Africa. It's a different culture where people sacrifice their firstborn children. It's a different culture. That's, are you going to accept that? I know you won't accept that. Most of the differences in human culture are not worth worrying about. There are a few that are. 
And in the question of the intermarriage that Ezra was talking about, that's what the people understood, was that those were things worth worrying about. We can have a long conversation about how that played itself out, right? But do you realize how many religions have existed in the world that no longer exist because they were, they intermarried so much and they accepted so much that they were completely deluded and went away, okay? Whether that's right or wrong is a different question. That just is, right? That just is. How many of you believe in democracy? How many of you believe in the right of an individual person to help determine their future politically? Okay? You know, there was a time in different cultures where people had none of that. Right? Well, let's not get into those problems, let's just say, <laughs> right? Okay, so here's the point. Y'all are still engaged with me. We're going overtime, but you're still paying attention, aren't you? This is fascinating stuff. You know, people who follow Jesus have to learn to discern between what's worth talking about, worth saying is right or wrong, and what's not. In the midst of all of that, we do that, interestingly, in a community, don't we? Hasn't this been a fascinating conversation? With the people assembled together. We must not forsake the assembly of the people. You do not live your life alone with God. That's another place where we make differentiations and judgments. Jesus never said to anybody, come follow me, but don't deal with anybody else. The first thing Jesus did when he got here in his public ministry was to form a committee. Another word for community. There we are. I better stop or you're all going to shoot me. <laughs> God, thanks for the love and the truth and the way that you give us in your son Jesus. Amen. God bless you.